This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. And now, Christ in Pop Culture presents Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson. everyone. I'm Erin Straza, and with me is Hannah Anderson. We're your hosts for Persuasion, the place where fine ladies, rational minds, and the best kind of company gather to discuss all sorts of ideas and issues. This episode of Persuasion is sponsored in part by B&H Publishing Group, publisher of Frankenstein, A Guide to Reading and Reflecting. Visit bhpublishinggroup.com to get your copy and to see all the other classics in that series. Now, if you've been following along for our fall series called What We Make of Ourselves, then you know we've been discussing the themes found in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Today is the series Bittersweet Finale. It is where we... It is bittersweet. Where we finally decide what we make of it all. Because right, it's kind right, of... all of it. We have a little perspective now. We've, we've worked through it all. We know the end. And now we can kind of catch our breath and just kind of look back. Which I'm very excited to do with you. And also, I must say that our finale is made a little less bitter because we have a guest to help us make sense of all of it. And to welcome our guests, we want to give a bit of an introduction. We have Karen Swallow Pryor with us. Karen is a dear friend of Persuasion, and she's an English professor and author. She's the editor of that lovely B&H classic series, including Frankenstein. That's the edition we've been reading from during this series. And with all of that said, Karen, welcome to Persuasion. Hello. It's so lovely to be back with you two. We are thrilled to have you here, for sure. Absolutely. And I just want to extend my personal thanks and gratitude, because I don't know if you hadn't picked this book, Karen, I may not have ever read it. (laughs) This is so true. (laughs) This was my first time to ever read this book through. And I was just really grateful that you had it on your radar and said, hey, you all need to read this. Put this in the classic series. It's so surprising to anyone who hasn't read it and just knows it from like pop culture clips, isn't it? Yes. We've talked about that so much, Karen, about (laughs) what a learning curve we had. (laughs) And it's been a really remarkable, pleasant surprise, too. Well, well, I'm glad to hear that. But I do want to know, like, what were some of the... The highlights. I know you. You know you've been doing a whole series on this, but give me the highlights of like the surprises. Like what surprised you most about it? I'm sorry, I'm asking the questions here, right? No, I love this. <laughs> Karen's interviewing <laughs> us. This is this. great. She's a well, you know what? This is what we that's do. right. She has questions. Well, you know, one of the things that surprised me so much was the depth of the the inner turmoil that we got to be part of with Victor and even the creature 
just to hear their ruminating and their their anguish. And that's something that I wasn't expecting because I thought of this as horror and I was thinking I was going to be scared or I was going to be completely grossed out. And actually, it was very much an uh, an insight into the inner world and the inner thinking of these characters. And I loved it. I, that was impressive to me, too. I loved the shape of it. I thought it was just so smart. Um, and I could see the parallelism and how she was really, this was really a, a piece of art. It was craft at a level that I don't think I was expecting. Absolutely. So, yes. but but I want to know, Karen, when did you first read this book? Like, what was your first time? Oh, my goodness. That is such a good question. Um, I don't know when the first time I read this book was. <laughs> um, it must have been college or, mm. you know, before either high school or college um, and then, so I, 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 I don't, I don't know. And I have been, um, teaching it for years. So some okay. books I do remember the first time, but for whatever reason, I don't remember. Well, this, maybe the first time this is the question. When did you w realize that this was something of value? Like in teaching it, did you have a time where you're like, no, this is worth our time? Okay. So this question I can answer because... To be honest, it was not my favorite novel in any <laughs> way, shape, or form. Really? And yes, because I I actually don't like the Romantic period very much. Mm -hmm. My you know my area of specialty is the neoclassical period, which comes just before Romanticism. And Romanticism is in many ways, among other things, a kind of reaction against everything neoclassicism stands for. And so since I'm a neoclassical specialist and the romantics were like revolting against neoclassical aesthetics and values, um, it's sort of the opposite of what I've studied. And now I've, you know, I've mellowed in my old age and I can have come to appreciate it. But when I began, when I developed my English novel class that I started teaching, you know, more than 20 years ago, um, and I, I'm studying and teaching the development of the novel through the 18th and 19th centuries, which is when it was emerging. I really felt obligated to include mm. Frankenstein as the romantic <laughs> novel. So out of sheer obligation and since you had yes, to pick something. duty to my students so well, that I could be a good a teacher. Well, isn't that a neoclassical uh, kind of response? <laughs> yes, absolutely. Fine, we'll pick one. <laughs> but it's just, you know, over the years of teaching it, I just I just grew to appreciate it more every single time. And the words and the, and the ideas just became more resonant resonant to me and I could appreciate them more. Um, so yeah, so that that's my story of Frankenstein. How many of your students have read it before? Or is it a lot of times their first read? Do you get the sense of how popular this book is? Yeah, that's a good question, too, because I do generally like to ask my students um, when I'm teaching, especially novels, if they've if they've read them before, just my uh, own curiosity, but also yeah. I like to know if they, you know, if everything's going to be a surprise to most of them. And very, this is not a novel that many students read. I would say, I would say it's, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's usually a few in class who've, who've read it in high school um, but for most of them, it's like like you guys. They just, mm -hmm. you know, you have an idea of what it is, and it just takes everyone by surprise. Um, 
who is this Robert Walton guy, right? <laughs> that was, I have to say, that was a little bit at the front end. I was like, wait a minute, did I pick up the right book? Are we right. sure this is the same book? But I will say, I, I kind of get what you're saying about the romantic period and the romantic elements. There were times in the book where I tend to be slightly more stoic and I'm like, oh, come on, can we move along? <laughs> <laughs> so I did find that a little bit like I, I couldn't always understand whether she was just portraying or if she was serious about what she was writing in terms of especially Victor's angst and the creature's angst. Um, but it was very much uh, very clearly set in that kind of romantic space. Um, so, yeah, I hear you about that. <laughs> yeah, it, it it is it it does try the patience of some of us. Um, yeah. <laughs> but she but Shelley was very sincere about that, and and her her life, um, you know, her she lived a, a life that wasn't. I mean, not in its most extreme forms in the novel, but I mean, a lot of it reflects her real life mm-hmm. and um and the times. So it was real. Yeah, and that's one thing we kind of picked up on in knowing the backstory, what you provided so helpfully in the note to the reader kind of helps set the whole context for this and knowing Shelley's own really, uh, you know, the upheaval of her life, the the constant movement around the continent that made a lot more sense in the novel. Um, That became kind of a running joke, didn't it? Um, Aaron, whenever anything yes. bad happens, we'll just away to another place. <laughs> right. Like we either away or we take to our bed. Those are the two options. I could completely relate to both of those things. <laughs> let's go somewhere or let's take a rest. Yes. <laughs> so I have a question. Uh, why did you choose this for the B&H Classic series? I mean, I understand including it in like a uh, you know, a college level course, and you're getting an overview of the novel and development of the novel. But why did you choose to include it in the B and H Classic series? You know that I, I I appreciate you asking that because um, it's interesting. I I'm pretty sure, and I haven't seen the numbers in a while, but just kind of checking now and then, I am pretty sure Frankenstein has been by and far the leading um, seller in this series. Well, of course, the last two haven't come out yet, but that surprised that surprised me again because it still is my <laughs> least favorite <laughs> novel, yeah. I guess. But but it's a top seller. It for being yeah. I mean, part huh. I don't yeah. I mean, of my series, of my series, you know, yeah, I don't yeah. think it's a, I don't mm-hmm. I don't think we're right, compete- right. I know what you we're mean. not competing with <laughs> Beth Moore yet. But you know, I it, the whole series is kind of a package, and it had to be the novels that I love and know. But then mm-hmm. I wanted it to be novels that. You know, I thought would appeal to people and also present a variety. I'll be completely honest, and I know you'll appreciate this, Hannah. I because I know I know you, and I know your your passions. I wanted to be sure that my readers knew that these the series is not just for women, right? Mm-hmm. This isn't just, mm-hmm. um, you know, J- even though Jane Austen is not just for women, um, by any means. If it was all that the kind of novels that tend to be perceived that way, then I would lose some of my most valuable readers, potential readers. And so I did intentionally say, okay, well, what are some novels I can include that are that might attract the male readers, like Heart of Darkness mm-hmm. and Frankenstein? Um, so, th- and and then you know there are a lot of other factors that went into place, um, like in terms of length, it was you know, Charles Dickens kind of eliminates himself out of the gate um, because, you know, these are these are volumes that are 
that are big already with larger font to be reader friendly and so forth. Um, so as part of a package, I think Frankenstein just it, it fit, fit in in that way. But like all of the other selections I've made, I believe this novel has so much to teach the church today. I mean, this is B&H is a, is a publisher that serves the church. And I think that the questions that Mary Shelley wrestles with in this novel and this is part of why I've fallen in love with it more and more every year I've taught it. I think these are questions that many people, young people, but all people in the church, not just out of the church, are struggling with today. Like mm-hmm. the goodness of God and the problem of evil. I mean, these are the central questions of the novel. And this is what, you know, Shelley is dealing with and having, you know, Frankenstein create this creature that he then abandons and is left to yes. suffer it. Yes. Mm-hmm. The whole mm-hmm. um, loss of generational ties, like that that abandonment by the parental unit, <laughs> whatever, the father of, of the creature, I found that to be so relevant just in terms of our own kind of atomized experience where we don't tend to have a good sense of begottenness or where we came from. And it's very clear within this story that if you lose that sense of connection to the previous generation it can just spiral out into um, all kinds of havoc. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. So yeah, I, I completely agree. We saw as we read through, everything was so pertinent, so it felt like you were reading something that could have been written yesterday in terms of the themes and the questions it was asking. Um, And I think um, that carried us along in a lot of our discussions because you couldn't help but see the questions um, and know that they were just everywhere, even within our our own moment. Um, But I also found it really interesting when you did the background that Shelley was only 17 18 when she wrote and published this novel. And that struck me as something that wouldn't happen today. Mm-hmm. Um, that there was something, obviously she had a really unique background and context, but what do we make of the fact that she was only 17 or 18 when she wrote and published this novel? Hmm. Yeah. I mean, that is one of the most remarkable aspects of, of this, the story of the, of this novel. And it, it does, um, Harken back to a different day, but maybe has some things for us to think about because because she was living in a in a much more stratified society. So she, you know, she was of the very um, 
enfranchised, connected class of people. Her mother and father were both famous and literary, and she grew up among books and smart people. And so she was very well connected, ran off with Shelley, and he was already, you know, a, a famous and controversial poet. And so in many ways, just being born into that class already determines one's, you know, ability to, to succeed in whatever area they were successful in. So so that's part, part of the story. I mean, it's not just her age, but the fact that she was born to, you know, a famous mother and father um, and was surrounded by other famous people that made it possible for her to, um, to, to write this novel and then, of course, get it published. And Shelley did have a very influential role and not only in getting it published but even in editing it and you know and shaping shaping Mm -hmm. the novel um so that's you know i mean that's part of the story and it's also part of the story that we probably are glad maybe isn't so true today that there is somewhat more equality and equal opportunity at least theoretically among more people even though you know we still have many obstacles to overcome. I think even so, there's at least a, a, a hint or a nod to looking at the opportunities and connections that you have and how those things move you forward in your work. And we, Hannah and I talked about that so much over the course of the series, how Victor lived a certain life that allowed him certain connections that allowed his work to move forward. And the same thing with Mary Shelley. And so we talked so much about how our interconnectedness and our current situations, how all of those things can both drive our ambition, but then also hint toward that destiny aspect. And so I, I think you're right there and in, in remembering how Mary Shelley's situation in it both set her up, but also constrained her. Like there are both of those two things at play. Yeah. And hearing you describe this context of, well, she was kind of, I won't say set up for success, but but you are. And that actually helps unpack and illuminate the question of ambition, too, because Mm. if you were born into that class, you would have this weight of making something of yourself. Like, it wouldn't be grassroots, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, but there would be this sense that you had a responsibility to live into all that you had, right? And so the weight of performance um, may be another way to think about the questions of ambition within the novel, that there's this destiny that I, I exist in this place and with these people and in this class, and and I have to fulfill it to become worthy or valuable um, or whatever. So that does give a lot more perspective to even some of the themes she brings up with ambition and destiny. And it was also, you know, a lot of it was Shelley's ambition. I mean, he... Um, it, it, and it's just so interesting to think about through the lens of, of current issues today because um, because he just played such a powerful role in his life, in her life, even in an abusive role. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, it's hard not to think of of his, you know, his sort of taking over this manuscript and getting it published mm-hmm. as more about him um, really than her. I mean, some people even thought that he was the original, you know, unnamed author of the book. Um, and so in many ways, Mary and their 
their children, most of them not making it, were all just sort of part of his extension, propping of, up his yeah. life. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Well, he definitely is a figure that is present, <laughs> you know, very, the, the, this kind of tortured genius, right? <laughs> That's very much there in the the book, even the plot. Um, but I guess, too, if she married really young, it, it would be hard not to have that presence. His Because he was older, to a degree, um, and established, and not to have that specter over her. But that also makes me think of how the male and female characters are even presented within the book. And I think you mentioned this in your note to the reader about the fact that the female characters tend to like embody goodness and almost passivity. They're there, but they're not very active. They don't have a whole lot of agency. And the men are the ones who are pursuing questions of ambition and destiny. And I, Aaron, you said once, I think there was one point where Victor was going off for two years and <laughs> right. What did Elizabeth there say? There was just the assumption. There was just the assumption that Elizabeth would be okay with this, and I, I can't remember what she said. Something like, um, "I want you to be well," and it was more like, "You go do this thing and get well, and then come on back, and I'll be here." And it just seemed so passive, it, she and was like, as if she had nothing else to the do. The only sadness just I wait. have is that I could be developed the same way, but I'm really just really right, happy right, for right. you to have this time. Yeah, she was so happy for him to go. So, so tell us about that. Walk us through that because it seems like such a different. I expected different from a novel that was written by a woman who was seventeen or eighteen. You know, I didn't mm. expect that level of. I don't know, almost backdrop. Women serving as backdrops. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think that's where you know it. The novel is somewhat autobiographical. I mean, as as privileged as Mary was, and as as coddled, and and I don't mean I mean as like confirmed and affirmed and held up yeah. as she was in her childhood, she was still a woman, and that became even worse when she went off with Shelley. So, in some ways, I think um, in Elizabeth, it's almost like a picture of, mm-hmm. of Mary. I think she would have mm-hmm. loved for Shelley to get better, um, even if it meant him leaving because, because he was, you know, he, he cheated on her and they had sort of an op- almost open relationship and she lived there. The friends were like that as well. Um, and he dragged her off through the European countryside when she was sick and their babies were sick and they died and the babies died. And for her, I mean, it seems like she, you know, it would have been I'm sure she wished that Shelley would get better. better. <laughs> there was that turmoil that you obviously was written into the entire story. But Hannah and I both f- took some liberty in assuming that Mary understood this personally in her own life. Right. Because someone to be able to write to that extent, the inner turmoil and what's going on when there are all sorts of personalities and circumstances at play. Um, It just seemed like she was drawing from her own personal experience there. We decided it was like a massive subtweet. Oh, (laughs) yes, yes. I'm not saying anything, but when men are emotionally volatile and creative tortured geniuses, this is what it looks like. Don't ask me how I know. Right. I think that's what she she was definitely, you know, engaging with that 
with yeah. what she was experiencing. Mm-hmm. And what I love too is like Shelly sort of the whole time is like oblivious that this is him, right? <laughs> <laughs> She's like, this is such a great book. Let's get it published. <laughs> and she's like, do you see anything familiar here? Is anything ringing close to home? <laughs> I really get this Victor guy. Yeah, right. <laughs> but seriously, let's come around. What yes, do yes, we yes. make of this as Christians? Um, one of the things that we loved, of course, is that you set us up in the introduction to think in terms of the themes and the questions. And to your point earlier in this conversation, these are um, perennial, really existential questions. Um, what do we make of uh, Shelley's answers or... I don't know if she had answers or if she was just presenting the questions and what Christian teaching says to these questions. Yeah, I mean, this this is one of the um, strengths of the novel, I think, for Christian readers. I mean, the subtitle is Prometheus Unbound, which, of course, harkens to the, you know, the the ancient Promethean myth of the God who gave humankind fire and and technology and other gifts and was forever punished by Zeus or whatever the 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 chief god is for doing that on behalf of humanity um and yet there are so many allusions throughout the novel also of Milton's picture of of god as a creator um creating mankind and so we have this mixture of kind of the christian god or creator and the pagan one and in that mixture as i said before the same kinds of questions that we all struggle with to some degree or another about the nature of god is he good or not and what is it you know we did we never ask to be created we didn't ask to be born as the creature says and um and so what do we do with a god who put us on earth and left us to suffer um and uh and and these are questions that that the bible does address but but we still have to struggle with them and and not just you know people struggle with them from within a christian framework and from outside a christian framework and i think this novel really gives us an opportunity to to understand these questions from both uh you know sort of traditionally christian perspective which is included here but also one that is far outside of that and the ones that I think a framework that I think more and more people are asking today. I so appreciate reading a story that that shows people wrestling with these questions in their context mm-hmm. because it's it's like I'm one step removed even though I know it applies to me and that I can relate to that there's something about entering into a story and watching that play out because like with the novel it, it spans years and so you're able to see the fallout or the the good fruit depending on what it is and you can see how those perspectives will lead someone to go down one road or another in their lives and so i i so appreciate literature for that aspect and i i'm grateful that you've pulled together all these classics for us to uh to be diving into and especially with the the reading and reflecting guides included. Those have been so helpful. And I, I'm sure that um, our 
listeners, all of you who have gotten a copy, you are enjoying those questions too. So, so Karen, thanks so much for pulling all of that together and for visiting with us today. We really appreciate your time. Well, thanks for discussing this wonderful work of literature. And I'm so glad that my um, questions have been helpful. Mm-hmm, for sure. Well, that does it for this episode of Persuasion and for our whole series. Uh, you can see the show notes to catch all those conversations. We will sync up all of Karen's information so you can follow her as well. And be sure to grab a copy of that B&H edition of Frankenstein. As always, you can find us on Twitter at PersuasionCAPC and in the Christ and Pop Culture Members Forum, where we're having running discussions about Frankenstein and a whole host of other things. If you're not a member of the Members Forum, you can become a member for just $5 a month and support these kinds of conversations and the good content that's coming out of Christ and Pop Culture. Persuasion is produced by Jonathan Clausen, and it's part of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. You can find all those shows at ChristandPopCulture.com, or you can go out to iTunes and search for them there. Thanks to all of you for listening to Persuasion, and we will catch you next time. You have been listening to Persuasion with Aaron Straza and Hannah Anderson, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Maiden Name. This episode was brought to you in part by Wheaton College's M.A. in Humanitarian and Disaster Leadership, which prepares Christian professionals to serve others faithfully and excellently. Called to help people facing disasters, human trafficking, poverty, or displacement as refugees? Visit wheaton.edu hdl.